Hi everyone and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. I started this podcast for a very simple reason. You can find podcasts on pretty much any topic, but I wasn't aware of any that were focused on public service leaders. So rather than wait for somebody else to do it, I decided to give it a try. I wanted to give public service leaders a platform to tell their stories, to talk about the reforms and innovations they put in place, and to share lessons in leadership. I think this will be particularly interesting for current and future public service leaders, but a lot of the lessons are more broadly applicable. So I hope you enjoy it, and please remember to register on the website to never miss a future episode. This episode I speak to Bruce Leake. Bruce is the Chief Executive of Suffolk Libraries, which was the first library service in the country to move from being within a council to a charity. And we talk about the benefits of that and how the service has expanded to become much more of a community hub. We talk about the role the library service has played in responding to the COVID pandemic, how they switched a lot of their services to digital, and some great examples of how the library staff have really gone above and beyond. We also talk about recovery from COVID-19 and particularly economic recovery and the role that the library service can play in supporting employment and even supporting the startup of new businesses. And in something a bit more unexpected, we discuss the leadership lessons that a library service or any public service for that matter can take from a nuclear submarine. So I must say, in my opinion, Suffolk Libraries is the very model of a modern library service. So let's hear from Bruce. Bruce, you're very welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. Um, I wonder if you could start by telling people just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, no, I started my career working commercially, mainly in events, um, some quite large international events um, for a couple of big publishing companies, LexisNexis and EMAP. And then got a little bit disillusioned with that and decided I wanted to do something that I felt was was putting more back in to society. So um, decided to move across the charity sector worked at the Institute of Fundraising for just under 10 years and it grew quite significantly as an organisation over that period and ended up becoming Chief Operating Officer and then Chief Executive for a bit and then wanted to move on for a fresh challenge after nearly 10 years, went to St John Ambulance to um, become a director there and ran um, their transformation programme in the east of England and East Midlands um, and also led on innovation at St John Ambulance for a period and then had a couple of young children and decided I wanted a job more local to home. So looked yeah. around at what was about my sort of area and found the job at Suffolk Libraries, loved the idea of it, loved the sort of community footprint and the impact of the, the service that I could see. So um, went for that. And that's where I've been ever since. Great. Um, yeah. So very mixed career with lots of good experiences that you can bring to your current role. Um, can you say a little bit more about the library service and what it's like and how it's formed and what it does, etc.? Yeah. So, um Suffolk Libraries is effectively as a charity. We were the first library service to be divested from a county council in 2012. And with that um, process and being the first, I think had a, we had a fairly chaotic birth. I wasn't there for it, but because no one had done it before, obviously there were lots of new challenges. And one of the happy accidents that happened as part of that process was a lot of autonomy and empowerment went down to staff at a local level. And after that happy accident, that's something that's been cultivated over time and is, is a key sort of strategic imperative for the organisation now. 
Um, so what we look at look us look at ourselves at is a is a real organisation that's able to get deep into the community, has roots deep in the community, works with the community to provide solutions to the problems that are there, um, and works really hard to expand our reach um, to as many um, parts of that community as possible. Yeah, and what does that look like on a practical sense? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening will think of a will still think of a library service as a collection of books. So what what is that service now? What is a modern library service? Essentially, a modern library service um, is, is very much a bridge with the community and offers a gateway to all sorts of different things, books being foremost amongst them. But we also offer, I mean, we ran in the, the years prior to COVID, we were running about 14,000 events, activities and experiences across our 44 sites every year, for example. And those can be massive variety of things from bike maintenance clubs um, sewing therapy specialist well-being sessions groups for older people um, you name it we pretty much run it but all of those things are based on a very meeting a very distinct local need um, bring people together in a central point allow them to make connections that can have a significant impact on their lives um, and then the whole process is I guess is intuitive because we're always out there putting feelers out um, for more and we work with all sorts of local partners to make those things happen as well and also galvanise volunteers to support our, um, okay. our very skilled workforce to make okay. it all happen. Yeah. So, so just to be clear for, for listeners, the library service had been within the council, but the decision was taken to enable the sustainability of the service that a, a, a new model, which was decided to be a charity, would be most beneficial and that presumably opens up avenues for access to different types of funding and things that wouldn't have been available necessarily within the council. Exactly yeah so effectively Suffolk County Council uh, have a contract with us pay us to run the library service and we have a specification that we deliver for them but outside of that you know as an independent organisation it's our gift what we do so we apply for as you've just said apply for different funding pots to support different initiatives that, that we've developed or work very closely with the council to help support whatever um, their their key strategic um, goals are at the time. Um, and one of the things it's allowed us to do is put some very specific focuses in some key areas that we think um, help support public health and also um, also other key sort of issues that affect communities across Suffolk. And could you just give an example of what one of those key issues might be? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, again, I might touch on these a bit later, but I think one of the key things that our service tends to focus on is more broadly supporting well-being. We're the only library service in the country that has its own well-being service. Um, We work locally with the NHS, with um, Suffolk Mind, who are our local county-based mind charity, and a couple of other charities um, uh, on on that service, which is called New Chapters, and that delivers all sorts of different things. There's a, a specialist website that helps support people with mental health challenges. We have open space sessions that we run in eight of our sites every week that help people with with mental health challenges to come together and get some informal support but also to create a network and um, going back to the point i made about connections earlier that enables them to sort of self-support a bit better as well so that's just one example of, of, yeah. of an initiative that's come about as a result of us being an independent organization okay great so you and your team have had an important role to play during the COVID-19 crisis with all of its complexities. What has that been like? I mean, I think, as is the case, I'm sure, for everybody, um, in the build-up to the first lockdown in March, it was it was all fairly scary, I think, you know, as, as rates of infection start to increase and so little was known about the virus. 
Um, there was a lot to think about. Um, I think our structure really helped us there. Um, we were very quickly able to create a, a, a very simple plan um, of what we were going to do in the anticipated lockdown. And then because as a, as a relatively small and agile organisation, um, we were able to move quickly to transform our website um, into the vehicle for our communication with the world even more than it already is and sort of push a lot of our activities through that, but also to develop a number of other innovative services um, that support the support of the community. So and I'll happily talk you through some of those in a minute if you want to. Yeah, 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 please do. Yeah, so um, essentially we had sort of three main strands to our um, activities. The first was a, a big focus on the digital content that we had on, already had on our website. We already had a great sort of um, digital borrowing offer, but we massively beefed that up. The second part of it was... Um, Sorry, digital borrowing. What, what is that exactly? Um, so digital borrowing, we have e-books. Um, okay. Borrow yep. Virtually every magazine um, that has been published in the UK through a service we've got, got called Press Reader. Um, we have online courses, um, all sorts of podcasts, all sorts of different things um, that you can access at the, the click of a mouse. The second part of our approach was about um, developing interactive live stream content. So during the three months of the first lockdown... Our staff curated and produced um, two and a half thousand um, live stream sessions of uh, all sorts of different things, uh, early years groups, um, older people's networking, um, crafts, you name it. Um, we did it and we were averaging about, I think, 2,400 engagements every day um, across that three month um, lockdown period, which is actually people participating in those things. Um, and then the third, which, which is probably a, a lot more people than would have actually physically attended in the uh, libraries, or, or perhaps not. Possibly not. I mean, we have uh, the fourteen thousand fourteen thousand events, activities, and experiences I described earlier. Uh, we have about two hundred thousand attendances every year. Oh, okay, uh, right. And that's grown by twenty five percent over the last five years. So, you know, like I said, we already have a significant audience, but yeah, you're right. We were, we were getting quite a big international audience for some of our stuff as well, actually. Uh, oh, during wow. the lockdown, yeah, we had people from India, Australia, Canada. I think there was a session that Southwold Library ran that I think two and a half thousand people attended or something. Wow. Uh, an early years one. Yeah. So, so, you know, that was quite an impactful part of what we did. And then the final thing, which is probably the most impactful was we set up um, what we called our lifeline telephone service where through our, going back to my point about um, local knowledge earlier, through our local knowledge and our local networks, we were able to very quickly establish the people who are most in need. Um, so during the three-month period between March and July of that first lockdown, our staff made over 6,500 calls to um, lonely and vulnerable people just to have a chat mainly, but also to help connect them up with other services that were available to support them in what was a very bewildering time for a lot of people. And there were lots of great stories from that. Um, one of the most, um, which was covered on the National BBC website, was where um, a 103-year-old lady um, <clears throat> had a book that she loved from her youth, but it wasn't an audio book, so she couldn't listen to it through our digital service. So our staff at Ipswich Library researched the book. It was in three volumes, I think it was, it was a very old book. And then they read the whole thing down the phone to her um, day after day so that um, uh, she could be comforted during a very difficult time for her. And, you know, we had people delivering doing random things like delivering seeds to people's houses, you know, because um, they expressed the need to grow some stuff in their back garden so they can get out to get fresh produce. In the So lots of weird and wonderful things we did, but all of them very much focused on having that very local and sort of dynamic impact. That's incredible. A lot of that sounds like stuff that you as, a, as an organisation decided to do yourself rather than were specifically commissioned to do. That's right, yes. And I think 
you know, the, the council, you know, at that time had some big challenges. And I think one of the key things about that relationship and their decision to um, have an independent charity running their library services is that there's a, there's a lot of trust in that relationship. And they knew that we would do, we would make the best with the resources we've got to deliver for communities across Suffolk. And, you know, like I said, that relationship's taken some time to build. But, you know, like I said, it worked really well during that crisis, particularly, well, that part of the crisis, I should say, is not over yet, is it, obviously? No, unfortunately, <coughs> it's not. And then just uh, uh, one last question on COVID. What sort of interaction have you had with other public services? Obviously, you have that relationship with the council, but has there been interaction with other services? I mean, we work with a lot of partners, some of them in the public sector, some of them um, frontline charities, some of them commercial organisations. So it tends to, I mean, for example, when we came back out of lockdown, Barclays, who we've got a really strong relationship with, um, donated 500 plastic screens to us for our staff to protect them. So that's an example of a commercial partnership benefiting us. But we work with, with other, I mean, our primary team at Suffolk County Council is the public health team, and we work on all sorts of different initiatives with them. But we're also working with the council at the moment on um, creating a significant disinformation campaign across Suffolk to help with vaccine rollout and all sorts of other bits and pieces. So um, very much for their comms and PR team. But it just depends on um, the moment. Um, and then the other thing we're doing as well is working with their digital team. We've just put in a bid for a large number of laptops and um, wireless routers. And we're going to do a device to your door scheme um, to try and get people connected up um, during a period when they can't go to their houses. Um, and are also working with them to create a support service an advice service for people who have universal credit applications who would normally come to the library and get a bit of advice about that. But we're going to set up a phone line and, and a part of our website that helps them um, in that area as well. So so we do work with them on supporting different agendas they have, but then we tend to take the project forward ourselves um, or do it in partnership with them if, if that's what they want. That's really interesting. Thank you for all of that. I think for people listening, it, it's a clear indication that a modern library service is not just about the books. It is actually a whole a whole community support network and infrastructure as well, which is really interesting. So on, on that point, libraries have been getting quite a bit of national policy attention. There's obviously been the review that uh, Danny Kruger MP did on on COVID responses and some potential policy initiatives off the back of that, which includes quite a heavy emphasis on libraries and their role. So it'd be great to get your view on the future of libraries. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I, I've made, I use this phrase quite a lot, but I, th- I see libraries as a gateway to opportunity. I think clearly this, um, this country is going to have some massive challenges following um, the pandemic. And probably, you know, we're going to be struggling with the pandemic for some time to come. And I think libraries can play a central role um, in being that gateway to opportunity to help and support people in all sorts of different ways. I'd probably break that down. I've talked a bit about well-being already, but one of our strongest and key reaches into the community allows us to support people's well-being. Um, and what I mean by that is we commissioned some research um, with Moore, Kingston Smith, the National Accountancy Practice, to try and calculate the social value of just three of our regular activities, um, which was some of the earlier stuff. Um, that we do work we do with people who have specific mental health challenges and also some of the sessions regular sessions we run for older people through the research they did worked out that we were just from those three regular activities um, every year we're generating two million pounds in social value with a return on investment of eight pounds for every pound spent and even worked out um, using some of their methodology that um, we were saving the NHS just under three hundred thousand pounds a year which is a small amount 
in the grand scheme of things, but locally, you know, not an insignificant amount. And that research also highlighted that we were creating material change for a lot of people um, in terms particularly of their well-being. So what I think libraries are, are able to do is to reach parts of the community that are either challenging to reach in, a, in traditional ways, but also um, are a very accessible place where people feel safe um, and are seen as a neutral environment and are the perfect, perfect location and space for people to come together, find, make, make those connections and help support improvements in their well-being that way. So that's one strand. Probably the second one is about economic renewal. And again, going back to the accessibility and the neutral status of libraries, we have a lot of facilities, kit and advice and support that can help um, either businesses get started at a very, very fundamental grassroots level. Um, we create pathways for people um, if they need further information and advice. And also at a very basic level, we have all the kit there to help people who are job seeking, looking for information and advice about universal credit or other types of financial support. So we really are, though, for me, the starting point for people if they're looking to take that journey um, to improve their circumstances, whether it be to finding a job or starting up starting up their own business. And then I think also libraries really, really have um, the potential to be at the centre of a different future in terms of the way that they're presented um, and the way that people see them. Um, and I and this won't be something we'll be able to do locally, I suspect, but on a national basis, it would be great to see libraries trying to work with bigger multinational organisations like Lego, IKEA, um, to try and present different ways for people to access um, not just some of the commercial benefits that those organisations deliver around sort of um, their engagement with customers, but also to try and de- develop a different type of service um, that attracts a different audience. So what what I mean by that is, and if we're talking about IKEA, we've we've talked to them before about um, creating a, almost like a, an IKEA department store um, that is like a living library, for example, is one of the one of the ideas that we had. Um, and obviously, we don't want com- a commercial imperative to get in the way of our neutral status. But at the same time, that type of partnership could benefit everybody because at the end of the day, it would create a different different. I guess, outlook for people as they, they look at the library, but also get them in and get them benefiting from some of the stuff that I've described already. Excellent. Um, yeah, no, that's really interesting. There's a couple of bits I wanted to pick up uh, with you there. One, you talked about the library being the perfect location. I mean, obviously, right now, that's <coughs> not necessarily a physical yeah. location. It's a virtual location. So yeah. how how do you see, let's say, the pandemic is behind us and we've returned to whatever the new normal looks like how, how much of the virtual stuff do you think you, you'll retain versus trying to return to more of a physical presence w- within communities um, we want to become what i would call a blended service which is to offer what is our strongest hand which at the moment is those events activities and experiences we've seen a huge shift over the past 10 years away from physical transactions in libraries to um, digital ones so many more people borrow items digitally rather than physically as you'd expect but what people do use libraries for when they come for a visit is an experiential thing so what we want to do is to try to create a blend of both of those things so making sure that the transactions and the pieces that are a bit more the the things that we do they're a little bit more remote a little bit more austere probably happen online although we'll still be doing some of those on our, at our sites but put a much greater focus on those things that really reach out to the community and help support people to make those connections in those events, activities, experiences and networks that have been so successful up until now. 
And we're also looking at, um, at the moment, um, we've just de- finished developing a business plan to create um, a digital platform um, that will help to make those connections more intuitively. So to try and personalize um, the experience that we offer. Um, and we got a small amounts of funding from the Nesta Foundation to create a design prototype of that technology a year ago or so now. Um, and we're at the stage now where we're looking to try and get investment in that technology to try and personalize the library experience. But there's a heavy well-being focus in that technology as well. Yeah. You mentioned services that you provide around supporting people to start businesses and to job seek. So obviously economic recovery for every area in the country is going to be critical now. But I'd love to hear a bit more about how you would envisage libraries playing a role in that. Yeah. Previously, we've always had a strong hand in terms of supporting the DWP and particularly in terms of supporting job seekers. We have CV clinics, job clubs, all sorts of other things like that. Um, We also have thousands of public access PCs, free Wi-Fi and also a very expert team of staff who are really good at signposting and advising people of the best places to find information if we can't provide it. Um, But also um, in just engaging them and helping support them in whatever way they need that support. We've been talking to DWP at a senior level um, about this um, gateway to opportunity concept that we have, which is about creating, going back to your um, question, creating a soft landing um, for job seekers of whom there may well be many more than ever before. And and many of whom will be unfamiliar with universal credit pathways, may find the job centre a particularly intimidating place. Um, And we see there being a crucial role for libraries in terms of, I guess, helping people who may be unemployed for the first time. Or, or who aren't used to being involved in a discussion around universal credit to understand the system, helping support them in other ways as well, not just in terms of the job seeking, but going back to the well-being element, sort of on the softer side of things, helping to link them to other things that can help their well-being, link them to other services that can help in other ways maybe, um, and providing almost like a more all-encompassing service than obviously the resources that are available um, to your local job centre. Yeah. So that's why we call it our gateway to opportunity and and ourselves and um, the three other library mutuals, as we call ourselves, um, in Devon, York and um, Nottingham, have a pitch in with the DWP at the moment about a pilot project to try and take that service forward. So supporting people back into employment, uh, is that something you do as a formal commission or is that an activity you do as a charity that's not formally commissioned by the public sector? Um, it is it's it's a the public access PCs, the Wi-Fi um, <clears throat> and certain more sort of low level elements of, of that type of support are commissioned services. But the extended stuff that I've just described, um, the extended advice and information, the focus on well-being, all those things are things that we've developed ourselves as an organisation over time with an understanding that if you're not confident, for instance, it's going to be very hard for you to do a job interview um, if you're not feeling in the right place emotionally, it's going to be very hard for you to focus on the things that you need to. So what we want to do is try and create a package that um, helps to support people in all sorts of ways. And it is something we've discussed with DWP in the past as well, because um, they recognise the need for people to be well to to get on a pathway to either a new career or a job. So I think we want to look at it in the most holistic possible sense, because I think just sticking someone in front of a PC and expecting them to... Yeah. to get going from there is probably not realistic in terms of some of the challenges that people have faced, particularly during the period. Yeah. So just to be clear, so people understand your business model in a sense, you have that core service, which is commissioned, but then you have other commercial relationships, which 
or, or funding relationships which bring in a resource which allows you to enhance those services and do other things as well. Exactly. Yeah. So I'll give you a good example of that. Um, we're what's called a national portfolio organisation. So we're funded by Arts Council England um, to run a digital art, digital youth arts program, um, but also that has a has a physical sort of um, aspect to it. Um, and they basically fund us to engage young people and get them involved in the arts. But there's also, again, going back to our focus on well-being, there's a strong well-being strand that runs through that runs through that as well. Um, and that's an additional service that we're able to offer as a as a um, charity because we are able to access that external funding. Um, and we have a number of other projects that are like that, that, um, that add value to our, our offer that's commissioned by the council. Thank you. Uh, the levelling up agenda and the associated levelling up fund will be key this coming year. Now, we haven't, haven't had details on exactly how that will be made available to local areas, but this can't just be focused on new roads, railway stations and things like that. The idea of community infrastructure looks to be very key. So what does community infrastructure mean to you and what role can it play in supporting the recovery and development of an area and within that what specific role do libraries play in that well i think and this this is probably going to sound a bit um a bit a bit sort of dreamy but um (laughs) you know i think it's about understanding the soul of the community um and that that's what that level for me that's what a a leveling up agenda should be about Um, and that's all about meeting very specific needs at a hyper local level which is what everyone's trying to do but it's really really challenging and libraries are perfectly placed to support any recovery in that context. And the best possible example I can probably give you, and again, I guess it's, it's, it's a thing that's focused on well-being, but I do think it's so important, is that, you know, the library service is like a giant social prescribing department store with so many different things to offer. Yeah, that's a really good um, way of putting it. Connect, yeah. connect people that, that offer them um, opportunities, offer them um, support that I think you know, using that giant department store for the soul, if you like, um, and engaging with people through the very strong links that libraries have in communities, understanding what they need, working with the local authority, working with other bodies to create and co-produce programmes that meet those needs, I think will be absolutely fundamental. And for me, the library is best placed in terms of being a key partner in that recovery because we are so accessible, we're neutral, we're safe, and we don't come with some of the caveats some of the other services might come with for members of the general public. And our big challenge is breaking down some of those preconceptions that you described at the start about us just being about books and about some of the old myths of the dusty bookshelf and the shh thing, you know, which we work very hard at stuff at libraries to break down through some work we've done with our sort of branding, marketing and comms team. But it's an ever... I guess it's an ever developing challenge because you can never do enough of it in terms of getting the message out there that that the narrative has changed and that we're a different type of service to what people perceive um, and we're here to break down those sort of preconceptions. Yeah, the department store for the soul, I think, is is a wonderful way way of describing it. The levelling up agenda at its core, it's about reducing inequalities and inequalities is about is about people. It's not necessarily about a new road and a new railway station and things like that. So what my big hope is that areas, when they are thinking of levelling up, that they have people 
in their minds front and centre when they're thinking about this and not just, you know, let's refurbish the railway station or let's invest in that new road that we've wanted. All that's really important. But true levelling up and true reducing inequalities has to have focus on supporting people as individuals. And everything that you've been talking about just feels like it fits really well with that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we're a we're a people business, you know, we're our staff are an amazingly, um, amazingly resourceful team who are focused on meeting the needs of their community, working with our, our highly skilled volunteers as well to do that. And I've said it several times during our conversation, but it's about connections and helping people make the right connections that can make that material change in their life. And our staff are particularly good at that. But it's it's that local footprint, which is so important. And because of various different challenges that governments over the years have faced and particularly local authorities in terms of their funding, it's harder and harder to find that level of local support that maybe was once there for people in years gone by. And we probably are the last sort of hyper local resource. And that's what puts us in a particularly good place. But it's a very fragile thing. And those financial challenges will will come on stream even more than they ever have done in the past over the um, coming years. So we need to be prepared for that and be as dynamic and diversely um, funded organisations as we possibly can to ensure that we meet those challenges and that we're there for those people and to make that material change. Yeah, certainly organisations like yours that are proving to be the most uh, sustainable are the ones that have diversified income streams and aren't just reliant on one income source. So I think that that makes a huge amount of sense. I always like to ask about leadership approaches. So what approach do you take with Suffolk Libraries and has has this had to change at all because of the pandemic? Yeah, so it has... it probably hasn't changed too much because my philosophy about leadership, um, which was which was actually formalised by reading a book, actually, ironically, um, is about empowerment and autonomy and having leaders at every level. And then I was, somebody recommended I, I read a book called Turn the Ship Around um, by a guy called Anthony Marquette, um, which is all about an American nuclear submarine. Um, yeah. And his philosophy is about a leader leader culture. He took over the worst performing um, nuclear submarine in the um, U.S. Navy and transformed it into the best by just making everyone a leader at their, which is incredibly difficult, obviously, in nuclear summary, never mind what their role was. So I hadn't thought of it in that context until I read that book, but that's kind of mirrors the philosophy that I have, which is that, you know, we're looking to empower people, give them autonomy and give them the opportunity to lead and be a leader in whatever their role is in our organization, whether they're a member of staff or a volunteer um, or whatever it is, because I think that empowerment is so important to building motivation and building ambition, um, which we're all about um, as a charity. In terms of our approach, we have a very, well, we try our very best to be the best possible employer we can in terms of, because we talk a lot about the well-being of others, but we try really hard to support our own staff well-being. So we've got well-being champions um, within our team. Um, we have our own well-being program as well. And we've had to really, going back to your question about the co- about COVID, <clears throat> we've had to put a really increased focus on that because obviously with a lot of people being stuck at home, it's very difficult um, for people to retain um, positive well-being. So we've done all sorts of different initiatives to try to support that. And the key thing that we've done is to try to give our staff during this really difficult time the security of knowing that we will always put their welfare first. So, you know, we've we've, we've done things maybe before or after other organisations in our sector um, because we felt that it was in the best interest of our staff and our customers 
Um, so I'd say the things that changed the most is that we probably would have taken less risks during this period than we would normally take in terms of, I'm not talking about health and safety now, but in terms of things we would do um, as services because we wanted to safeguard our staff, their morale and their well-being. Yeah, I must read that book about the submarine crew because it, it, it rings very true. There are a number of good books in different areas. So I read one last year about the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team. Oh, yeah. uh, their philosophy is very similar, that everybody is a leader and it, and everybody takes their turn doing the hard jobs as well. So they have this, this philosophy of sweeping the shed so the All Blacks never leave their changing room untidy and it's always someone's turn and that could be one of the most senior players or one of the most junior players but everybody takes their turn and so everybody's a leader but also everybody does the menial stuff as well so it's it's probably quite a similar philosophy. Um, what, what were some of the practical ways that you have encouraged that philosophy in, in your team because it's all very well saying it and even coming from you as a leader, saying, I want everybody to take responsibility and to feel empowered. But how did you actually get people to 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 grasp that? A lot of it's about, I mean, there's two strands to it, really. It's about having real clarity of um, purpose. So getting people to understand what we're all trying to achieve and then getting people aligned behind it. So so a lot of the work that we do with our staff is to give them clarity about where, where we're going, but also to spend a lot of time reinforcing and highlighting to them the difference they're making, the impact they're making, you know, at that hyperlocal level. So giving them specific examples of of where we're making a difference and how by through their leadership they're making a difference. And then the secondary thing in the the book is great because it also highlights how important the use of language is. Mm. So on an obviously on a naval um <laughs> submarine, you know, it's a command and control structure. But what um, Anthony Marquette tried to do was break that down and get people to make their own decisions. And a lot of that's about language. So rather than saying, is it okay if I do this, sir? You know, he got them to say something like, I intend to do this, sir. I'm now going to proceed or something like that. So it's just simple things like that, but in language. So rather than asking some, getting somebody to ask you if it's okay to do something, it's about empowering them to make a positive statement, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that that is a very good point rather than, constantly asking permission and almost looking for excuses not to get on with something because you're waiting for permission it's that uh, you need to condition leaders to 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 respond quickly if they have a problem with something almost yeah exactly and then that breeds responsibility and accountability which is what everybody wants as well but that which leads to you know pride passion and you know like i said a, a, a self-fulfillment you probably don't get if you're just following a set of orders from somebody at the top of the chain. Yeah. So, um, Bruce, as a final question, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity delivering public services uh, who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? I would say, I mean, one of the key things in the library sector that we're not generally very good at is a focus on evidence and impact. You know, if you can put a financial value on the impact of your service or have really compelling evidence that shows the value of what you're doing, you don't safeguard yourself because nobody's safeguarded these days, but it's a step up the rung um, and it makes it much easier to present to those people who are either policymakers or funders um, how you're going to solve their problem and, and provide them with the evidence that you can actually do it rather than just talking about it in probably in a more worthy context. And then the second thing, a bit of advice I'd probably give, is to be ambitious and always, always look 
to be restless and curious, but also be ready for the knockbacks that come with that and have the resilience to get through the other side of those knockbacks and just continue to be ambitious, curious um, and wanting to sort of push your, push the agenda um, forward as well as you can to, to benefit others, which is what we're all here for. Great. Bruce, many thanks for your time. That's OK. Thank you very much. So anyone who still thought that libraries were just about books has hopefully been set straight. It was really interesting listening to how Bruce described the library service variously as a hyper local resource, as a social prescribing department, and even a department store for the soul. And I thought that actually really got to the heart of what Bruce and the team are trying to do in Suffolk. The discussion around the levelling up agenda was also very insightful and very informative about how this needs to be uh, about people and not just about infrastructure projects and indeed Bruce used that language again of it being about the soul of an area. And finally I found Bruce's comments and thoughts on leadership to be very insightful. A lot of people talk about empowering their team and creating leaders at every level but I thought Bruce had some really good practical hints and tips on how to actually achieve that. So that's all for this episode and thank you for taking the time to listen and don't forget to register on the website and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to never miss a future episode. <laughs>